0: Hello everyone, I'm Richard Broad and welcome to the Teacher Hacks podcast. This podcast is an opportunity for teachers to learn and share best practice across a range of different topics and teach, uh, in teaching and education. Today I'm in conversation with Max Scott. Max is a, fair, is a fairly new teacher to the classroom, having started teaching in 2015 and now works at Glenmore and Winton Academies in Bournemouth. Glenmore and Winton have recently become one of the highest performing schools in the country, having achieved a progress eight score of one05 in their most recent results. He's an RE and ethics teacher who has risen to a leadership position quickly in his career, having already been head of year during his NQT year and is currently deputy head of humanities. Max is going to share the story of why he got into teaching, what he loves about it, and have a general discussion about education as a whole. We might touch on classroom culture a bit later on in the episode. All notes and further information on our discussion are available from SenecaLearning.com. So, Max Scott, welcome and thank you very much for joining me. Absolute pleasure, Rich, thank you. So, Max, I was just wondering if you could give uh, listeners an overview of what you've done in your career so far to date um, and hear about a, bit, a bit about your story and why you decided to uh, begin teaching.
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, like most postgraduates or people in the final year of uni, they panic. When their dissertations written, or uh, that's at the, at the end of their final year, about what they're going to do. Um, luckily, my mum's obviously really supportive, and she used to, she would just sort of send me lots of different things that she thought I'd be good at. One of them was teach first, where I met you. Um, and so I, it was it was just one of those things where I, I applied for it, and it's the first thing I applied for. The the sort of application process was quite long, but I was lucky enough to to get a place in it. And um, yeah, and that was that, and it just it was. Before that, I had no intentions of of being a teacher, you know, I was one of those students I I didn't really know what I wanted to do, I was really passionate about philosophy and theology um, and those sorts of things, humanities, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, But the sort of, the vision of Teach First, as cliche as it gets being a Teach First graduate and and all that sort of stuff, it it was sort of captivating and I thought I'd give it a go. And then, yeah, that's it really.
0: So then, you decided to go uh, into teaching. Decided to teach first. It was for you. What, how did you find that that transition from student to um, to teacher? Yeah, it's, it, I think it's it's easier answering that answering that
1: in retrospect. When it was happening, it was it was it all. I mean, you've done teach first. It, it happened so quickly that you just take every day as it comes, and, and then the, then there's a year up, and mm-hmm. you, you know you've done it. You become you know fully qualified teacher. I was really lucky in that, one, I was placed in in a school that was incredibly supportive. My mentor's become a great friend of mine and we still work together today. So I I, I was really lucky in that regard, but also the people that I was placed with in in Bournemouth, you know, I lived with a couple of lads, Simon and Ollie, and we we just got on really well. So actually it did feel like uni in a sense because I was living with a couple of mates. We didn't have much money. Um, We were really busy at work, but then we, you know, that sort of social dynamic of Teach versus you know made it made the experience a lot more worthwhile
0: so just to, just to clarify Max and I worked together um, for a few years uh, i had been teaching for a couple of years already and Max started in the classroom so I know he was a very successful teacher um, pretty pretty quickly when he first started so I'm interested to know in his opinion now having had a few years experience in the classroom uh, what made him so uh, what did he think made him so successful in the classroom um, and also um, he obviously uh, rose to a leadership position um, in his NQT year, which is very, very fast and not um, something that often happens. So I'm interested to know what you think uh, was the key to that.
1: Yeah. So put, put, to put it simply, it was the, I think it was the training that I received in that six weeks um, of summer institute in Teach First before before I started. Um, having being a deputy head of department now and, and having trainees come through our department from different providers. I've been shocked. Uh, I've, I've been shocked about some of the things that teachers are trained to do by their providers. You know, sort of lots of the trainees that come actually come with really bad habits. That ultimately comes from a real lack of authority or, or insecurity on the part of teachers. But the training that I received was just—it just sort of instilled us all with a load of confidence that actually, it's teaching can be really simple and really easy if you. You know have really high expectations if you're warm not confrontational but but quite strict and teach first just equipped us with you know teach like a champion techniques and things like that which are just i think you know just little nuggets of wisdom that make teaching a lot easier and actually liberate you and students to do your job which is to to teach and learn so I, I i honestly think it was just the training that i received and then that was then an ongoing process, it wasn't six weeks, here's a few things you, you've got to do, um, you know, change your name on social media so that they don't see pictures of you when you were at partying at uni <laughs> okay. and, then the, and then that's it, it the, the support was ongoing, this has almost become a bit of a plug for Teach First now but it, it, was, <laughs> it, it was just um, incredibly clear, incredibly simple and I think that just set me up to, to really enjoy teaching from, from the first
0: day. And what, so when you started that leadership position um, in, at the beginning of your NQT year, um, obviously teachers are always growing, learning, evolving, yeah. but you're still very much right at the beginning of your learning process then. How did you find balancing the responsibilities you then had with the, the learning side of your, your job that you're obviously still heavily involved in?
1: Well, I, well I, I'd become a head of year, so it was actually a very different role. It, it was, being head of year, it's incredibly reaction, reactionary. You, you can't really plan for much, and it has very little to do with teaching. So, not being head of year now, so I was head of year for about two years, and then I moved to be the de- deputy head of department. I felt like I almost put my teaching on pause for a couple of years, because it's so all-consuming, and how did I deal with that? And I'm repeating myself, but it's having just incredibly supportive, supportive, team around me. So I was in a department of, of heads of years who were really experienced, a really tight knit group of people. Um, when you're head of year, you're, you're sort of you're at the forefront. You're like, you know, at the forefront of the battlefield, if you like, constantly putting out fires. And so I think that creates a lot of cohesion in a team. And it was just, I just had to work hard. There, there, there was. I worked longer days. Um, I was more stressed. But one thing I did learn is that I think stress is about capacity. It's not necessarily about um, it's not necessarily about individual reactions and your emotions and your personality type. It's just about capacity and, and efficiency. And so at first, it was. I was like, I was drowning in it. You know, I was a bit like mm-hmm. a, you know, what is it? A duck. Flapping its whatever's under the water. What's the? What's I, that? Can't what's of, that I can't think. I can't think of the phrase. You know what Yeah, around. yeah. Um, and so, I f- yeah, it was really difficult. But you, you become, you become accustomed to it, yeah. and your capacity to, to work, um, you know, becomes a lot greater, and and mm-hmm. then you just get used to it. But it, it was just hard work, support, and all of the standard things which lots of mm-hmm. people that are successful always you know, talk about.
0: So he talked a lot about stress management, um, working long hours, things like that, that teachers up and down the country uh, will sort of be able to relate to you um, with that. Um, what do you see as uh, the, your school first of all but also like the government's role in supporting teachers with that?
1: I th- yeah I think the main the main thing that needs to happen across across society is there'd be a change in the way that parents, children, Wider society views teachers. You know, you look at teachers, for example, in you know in Asia, they're 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 widely regarded as 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 important as doctors and scientists because it's it's valued as a profession. And I think that that isn't the case here. There there is this unhealthy suspicion about how good teachers are, how much they care. It's like It's it's the age old saying about if you can't do teach. And I think that that is sort of. Underpins lots of people's opinions of it, and as a result, schools are always on the back foot. Teachers are always on the back foot. So when when a teacher, for example, calls home because they're concerned about behaviour, and this isn't this isn't a generalisation, but I do think often there is a because of that suspicion, because of that, um, I don't know that sort of criticism that people have towards teachers. There there is this conflict between the, the hard work that you know, honest, integrous teachers are trying to do, um, and the perceptions that the public has of, of teaching. And I think what, what we've seen is one of, the, one of the largest pendulum swings in society, because schools used to be um, very draconian, students were punished with the cane, the slipper. You know, I think about, I remember when I watched Kez in year 10, And one of the only scenes I can remember is when he sat outside the teacher's office and he can hear the cane on the back of the hand and and the other student, you know, whimpering. And I think those images sort of pervade people's imagination. And I I think because of that, we have, the pendulum has swung in the past 20 years to there being absolutely no authority in school and, and disciplines become a dirty word and teachers almost have lost that that role or that authority um that that they should have in the classroom on that almost that moral role of loco parentis you know when you're in school we we model what it's like not only to learn but to be good people and so managing behavior has been incredibly difficult because schools almost aren't have not been allowed to to teach what is right and wrong and what is acceptable and what is not and now you know that's I think the pendulum's moving back to sort of a more balanced place, but but even now I, I still think discipline has connotations of corporal punishment and it has uh, you know draconian connotations. Mm. And actually, I, I've I've got a book here that I'm reading. It's called Notes on the Death of Culture, and he just and within this he he gives a definition of authority, which I think yeah, it's just really poignant. He says authority in the Roman sense which is not power, but rather as it is defined in the Spanish real dictionary, prestige and reputation which is recognized in a person or an institution through their legitimacy or through their quality and competence in some area. And I think when we when people talk about authority in school, as I say, there's these connotations that it's unfair and that it's confrontational and that it's aggressive. But actually, I think then, we need to do a lot to raise the profile of, that actually teachers are hard-working, committed people who, yes, have great holidays, but, you know, speaking from experience, bloody well deserve those holidays because we work 12-hour days regularly and we work on Sundays to make sure that the week is planned. And so the authority that we, or the respect that we demand or the respect that we expect as classroom teachers doesn 't come from an unhealthy place it 's rooted in the fact that we are experts in our field we know what we 're talking about, and we 've worked hard to to do this and we 're called to it mm. you know i I went, I went to school a couple of couple of months ago now and I met a few of the trainees there and and I, I just remember meeting one trainee who had a, had a clear sense of calling almost and we don 't we don't really use that term anymore. Or, or vocation that they, they they wanted clearly wanted to be there and and they clearly wanted to teach and change young people's lives and i think unfortunately they were in a school where despite their passion and despite their their genuine desire to be in a classroom and and you know educate young people in a incredibly impoverished area that the systems and structures around them were not Supporting that individual teacher mm. and they were getting to a point where they were then questioning that and And how and you'll have seen this in your role when you worked to teach first That like how? Sad is that to see that people come into this profession with so much energy and enthusiasm and then after a couple of years think And th- I think the average is five years then think I made a huge mistake mm. and leave because the structures surrounding teaching have failed not because they aren't well-intentioned and they aren't hard-working and they aren't there for the right reasons. And I think you can, I, you know, I'm, I I do, I'm quite critical of lots of the things within within educational policy, within sort of teacher trends, and so I do criticise teaching and I think that's healthy, but I don't think you can criticise teachers on the whole for not working hard and not wanting to be there Whereas in other in other sectors in other industries, people just fall into it because it's just what postgraduates do, for example. And I'm not necessarily I'm not criticising people that go work in engineering firms or go and work for you know big businesses, but you cannot criticise teachers for that passion and for that hard work. So to answer your question, what what can we do to support that? I think teacher training needs needs a massive revamp. And I know I sort of big up Teach First a lot. And it's not just Teach First, but like I said, I've had trainees come through our department and worked with trainees in other schools and been lucky to do that and had the privilege to do that. And they come in with these bad habits that they're they're encouraged to do by their training providers. And it's things like, rather than sanction a student for being rude, the teacher will stand at the board and you know, tally the amount of minutes that that class is going to stay behind or tally the amount of minutes that that student is going to stay behind for example and I think that's rooted actually in insecurity. It's it's rooted in the training provider not having the confidence to tell that teacher to have no excuses for, for their students and to have high expectations. Another thing that you see is trainees coming in with, you know, and spending hours and hours cutting up card sorts and sort of these activities which they think are going to create engagement because they're fun, quote-unquote fun. Mm. And actually those activities that they've planned and think are fun don't... and actually those activities that they have spent hours planning and designing and, and again from a really good, a well-intentioned place they're not effective because the student doesn't remember the knowledge and information they need to. They just remember going around chatting and swapping cards like like a game of top trumps. Mm-hmm. And I think that stems from this it stems from again it's again it's insecurity from it stems in an insecurity that the the knowledge that we teach and the curriculum that we teach is not enough to inspire and interest a student. And so we create all of these activities that actually waste hours of our time as teachers and have little effect on the outcome of their learning. And so I think what the government needs to do is to sort of review how we train teachers and focus not on golden ticket lessons and on gimmicks, but on how to manage a group of people because that's incredibly difficult you you ask you know I could think of five people in my football team who are really confident that I play football with every week and on the pitch they're shouting they're loud they're confident they're in your face but you put them up when we have presentation evening in front of the whole team the first team the reserves you know the people that have played there for twenty years they 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 crumble under that like it is it, it's a very difficult thing to manage a room of 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 people, let alone pubescent, hormonal teenagers. And so I think we need to forget about the gimmicks and forget about the, you know, those sorts of things and teach trainees how to manage classrooms, then the responsibility on planning lessons should be on the school. There should should be, you know, well-planned, long-term plans of curriculum where you can go into a file and finding and know exactly what you need to teach and when. That shouldn't be the the time, the, the time consuming thing. That should be very clear. Here's a really good resource that's rich in knowledge that is gonna that is going to interest people because it's been well planned. It's been written with rigor by someone who's an expert, not just some random person that thought, oh, I'll go and teach. It's been written by someone that's passionate about that subject. That's all done then for the trainee. The trainee should be spending their time reading about pedagogy. Re- reading about um, how to plan curriculum, what is an effective way of um, developing long-term memory and, and you know, Reduce, knowledge just Reducing
0: retention. cognitive load, all that yeah, stuff. Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And that's why you find in the best schools across the country, and you'll know this more than me, they are, the best schools are people that breed leaders young. And because oftentimes, and you know, I'm, I'm not saying if you've been in the profession for 30 years then you're redundant, of course not but you know change happens when people are teachable and the best people i work with are always trainees because they they want to learn they want to grow they're open to criticism and feedback and so training training providers should be focusing on those things and and liberating trainees to not worry about having a powerpoint with 73 slides on it you know um lots of which is lots of students find difficult to actually mm-hmm. read <laughs> especially if you are in big state schools with big classrooms because there's 35 kids in there mm-hmm. you know the focus should be on developing as leaders and and growing yeah just growing in your ideas of of
0: what it is to be a good teacher yeah it's, it's really interesting you say all that because I, I like sorry s- I appreciate that's like a, a massive stream
1: of consciousness I've gone from loads of no no
0: I've I've, I've, I've enjoyed it because I've a few things like to pick out like I, I, I remember like really clearly having my PGC tutor come in and uh, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. you know the bells and whistle lesson yeah, that you yeah. talk about like it was an expectation that I would pu- put on a show yeah. for this person and in doing uh, so you, you'd You'd cut down about five trees because you've exactly thousands of different sheets and resources. waste hours of my time because yeah. I've done so much cutting up and stuff. And actually, there's not enough evidence-informed um, practice delivered to, mm. to people who are new new to the profession. And you know, this is how you teach this topic. This is the best way to do it because mm. this is what the research shows is effective yeah. when learning this. Yeah. And, and you you just don't get that as a as a as a trainee. Yeah. yeah,
1: because because lots of the time, you know, great practice is really simple, and actually you you go into it's really interesting. Our school had um, a visit from sort of head teachers from around the region, and I was talking to talking to someone about you know what was their feedback. What you know did they like it? And one of the comments that was made was. Um, was about the building, the, the school I work in is a really old, old building. And her questions weren't about, weren't about, you know, what's your T and focus? What's your TNL drive? How do you train, you've got lots of young teachers, how do you train them? Um, and you know, what, how hard are your students working? You know, you know, there was no important questions. The question was, um, I'm surprised you're doing so well with this building. As if, as if having a million pound new build is, is directly linked to, to, out, to outcomes, and I think that's indicative of, you know, pe- of lots of people within the profession's attitude about what makes a great lesson, what makes a great teacher, what makes a great school, and so going back to your example, sort of evidence informed, evidence informed practice lots of outstanding lessons or consistently great lessons lots of the the lessons are silent because the students are working really hard and they're engaged and i remember thinking as an as an re teacher who you know who loves a good discussion and a debate and grappling with concepts through discussion i still think that's really important but when i first came into it i was i was almost insecure and afraid of silence because i thought Oh no, the the silent that they're, they're bored, and and I, I'd almost, I would interrupt the silence, because I thought almost had this this innate insecurity that that it was a bad thing, mm. and great lessons and great practice is often just really simple and really calm. I do remember that there was a point in my teaching where all I wanted to do was for the students to be engaged, and I thought that that was it. I thought that silence was a sign of disengagement when actually it's not. And a bit like discipline, I think silence is, is a dirty word. S- silence has connotations of students sat in rows in their exams or students sat in detentions in silence in big halls with a domineering um, sort of head teacher figure, you know, who's got a cane and he whips the desk. And so I- again, I think that silence is something that we're, we think is a bad thing. And I think actually science has a really important role, especially you look you know, at society on a wider level with the, the mental health crisis, especially among young men, um, and the drive from the NHS on like, well-being and meditation and all of the different apps that have come out that are sort of fantastic and that provide people with that that moment of silence to reflect and to breathe and to count down, I think actually silence in the classroom can be great for a student who maybe has a really tough time at home who has a complicated dynamic amongst peers and there's lots of gossip through social media they go home and they listen to music on their bluetooth headphones and then they get home and they're on the playstation and they get home then they're on social media looking through three you know 30 second videos and it's there's constant noise Mm. i think actually A student coming into a lesson and being able to sit down in silence and work and think about one thing that isn't about, that isn't unhealthy, that's not gossip, that's not, you know, about body image or self-worth, it's just about knowledge and about learning. I think that can help student well-being, being in an environment where you're with peers and it's not negative and it's not judgmental, you're all equal in a classroom. If there are really high expectations and there are sanctions for poor behaviour that are given calmly and warmly and in a non-confrontational manner. No matter who that student is, whether they're a middle class student who, you know, are brought up in a you know, really sort of nurturing environment to a, a, a child that is brought up, you know, in in relative poverty, it doesn't matter who they are, they can come into a classroom and just work. because the basic simple things are done well and it's not about, right, let's get into groups and we'll have the really clever student with the, you know, the the, the weakest student in the class and we'll get them to work together and you'll put a hat on because that hat represents creative thinking and this hat represents, you know, all those gimmicks
0: mm-hmm. don't actually help a student learning. So you've talked a lot about like discipline and a few other points as well, like the, the, the name of this podcast is Teacher Hacks all right. Yeah, so we're okay. looking for tips and tricks and things if you had to give one piece of advice uh, you talked a lot about training teachers so it can be towards training your newer teachers um, mm-hmm. for creating this sort of this culture this ease of silence or this um, I wouldn't really know how to describe it but creating that atmosphere in mm-hmm. the room What what would that be do you think
1: When, when, when I did Teach First Train, we were asked what our vision was for the classroom. My, my vision was some, some sort of grand vision that was well-intentioned but not necessarily um, relevant. But I do think one thing I did do that I still do and that I will always do, is whenever I meet a new class, I give, I give them my expectations, okay, and I tell them very clearly what I expect in the classroom. So what sort of things do you do? You tell them? Okay, so, um, oh, for the life of me, I can't remember who said it, that's awful. Um, famous quote, it takes a small group of thoughtful and committed citizens to change the world. So I use this quote, um, and I break it down, and so, so my expectation for you is that you're thoughtful and committed, and I just break that down really clearly. I say being thoughtful is when I'm talking, you're listening, you're not looking out the window, looking in your bag. When someone else is talking, you listen to what they've got to say. Um, whatever's, gone, if the, whatever's happening outside the classroom, whoever you're sitting next to, whether you're their best friend or whether you don't like them, you treat them with respect. And then being committed is you give 100% every single lesson. I'm not gonna be angry if you don't understand it, First time, second time, third time. What I care about is that you committed. And then I say, the reason I, I ask these things of you is because I will be thoughtful and I will be committed. So I I make myself accountable. And so and sometimes I'll say, for example, I will not shout at you. I will not be aggressive with you. And so I, so I'm I set a standard for myself where you know if if someone is talking while I'm talking, I don't I don't say why are you talking. For example, I'd I'd say, Jimmy, your name's on the board because you're talking while I'm talking. Make sure that you're listening. And so I I make it very clear what what I expect of them, and then I do
0: not budge. You hold them accountable to that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's not not accusatory with the whole like, what are you doing? Stop it. It's it's just you know we've set them set the boundary. Yeah. You've crossed it, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. And then after the first half term, which is always really long, eight weeks, when they come back, I just remind them just for two minutes, and, and I put them up on the board. These are my expectations. Um, just a quick reminder: you've been fantastic in that last half term, but I just want to remind you that I expect you to be thoughtful and committed. And just to, to to sort of stamp out low-level disruption, because if you know, lots of teachers feel, well, he's only just sort of whispering to the person next to him, and so. I just make those things explicit. So for any, any trainee that might be listening, or, yeah, my, my, my hack or takeaway is make your expectations explicit. And actually that's, that's predicated on the, on the fact that you've got to know that. You've got to work that out. What do you want for your classroom? Mm-hmm. Like, wh- and, and sort of microprocess it. So think about the little things that sort of get on your nerves the little things that frustrate you that you wouldn't necessarily send a student out for, but that do disrupt the rhythm and flow of a lesson. Microprocess those, write them down, like take notes. And then from that, create a list of things of what you do expect and what you don't. And it might seem a bit weird, almost creating like a a list of do's and don'ts, but it's it's liberating. Because as soon as you realise this is what I want my classroom to be like, and it's explicit, You communicate that very pleasantly with your students, like you say, not in an accusatory way, like I'm expecting this. Expect the best in them, especially if they're in a low set. You know, so often I see expectations just go out the window for students with special educational needs. And so especially for those students, because every student is equal. Make it really explicit, hold them to account, hold yourself to account, and whatever system of you know, whether it's chance, choice, consequence, or one warning and you're out, or whatever system you have at your school, follow that to the letter. And it might be that with a really challenging class, at first that's really difficult and there's pushback, there's always going to be, but very quickly the students will realise if you're consistent and calm and confident in administering sanctions and discipline, that you mean business. And actually what that does is that liberates the students that don't cause any issues to be in a completely focused and harmonious learning environment. And then it lets the students that want to push the boundaries know that it's not acceptable and they either adhere to it or they you know they get they, they face the consequences, which is a like a an, almost a natural law, isn't it? We live in a democracy, we have a legal system. If I speed I'm going to get a fine. I'm going to get a ticket if I decide to to drink and then go and drive. There's going to be a consequence. And you know, going back to what we said, what we were saying earlier about sort of this societal suspicion of teachers. Teachers should be confident to to teach right and wrong. And you know, we could get and I'd, I'd love to because I'm an ethics teacher. We could get into a, you know a, di- a discussion or a debate about. Um, about what is truth and what is right and what is wrong. Um, But it's pointless, because we live in in a democracy which is very clear about what is right and wrong, what's important, compassion, empathy, respect, tolerance, British values, Mm. Um, and all of those things. It's it's our moral duty and responsibility as teachers to to make that clear. I'm aware I always rant, mate, I'm really sorry. Um, But I'm really passionate about it. And one thing I I said, uh, um, just I want to clarify about, I I think some teachers' expectations—they have these really clear expectations for top to middle sets—but then you get a group of thirteen really low, low ability students that struggle. You know, have classes with lots of um, special educational needs, etc. And they—they go out the window those expectations. Mm -hmm. And then, and so. And I, I, you know.
0: Well, they're different. Almost, they, they do still have expectations, possibly, but they'll they'll shift the, what those expectations yeah. are because yeah. they're yeah. a different group of students. Yeah, and it's and that's a disservice to those students that actually deserve exactly the same expectations as every other kid. Actually. Exactly, because I think that what it does is it, is it perpetuates an unhealthy apathy within that
1: child. Essentially, what you're saying is because you because you aren't achieving as much as these other students, or because you're not as intelligent as these other students, or because you find it more difficult to remember things than these other students, we're going to let you fail. That's what it comes down to. You're saying to the child, if you change your expectations, or have low expectations, I care less about you. And it might sound brutal, but I think it's true. And I've, I challenge myself on it all the time. Uh, as deputy head of a department, I've sort of tried to not just take the top sets, um, because I want to subvert that that um, prejudice within me. Because of course it's easier to teach incredibly bright, articulate students. It is, and it's and it's often a joy, and it's rewarding. I'm not undermining that desire whatsoever, but. It is true, and I, I'm, as a math, as, as an ex maths teacher, you you would probably say, "Of course, it's, you'd rather teach top set year eleven boys than bottom set year eleven boys." The maths GCSE,
0: yeah, and I th- <laughs> it's, it's it's just it's very different challenges, isn't it? That's that's the thing. Like, I I always found the, the challenge of making sure that my most able students are being stretched like the really fun thing. Um, the challenge of course, of the challenge of managing the behaviours, you know, or like you know, engaging students who can't even bother or you know, mm. don't feel like they want to lift a pen at that, that moment because it's math. It's not to diminish. Can't that math. Exactly. It's yeah. not to say
1: that that you know, if you're a a and T coordinator, you hate yeah, yeah. <laughs> SCN <laughs> students whatsoever. But I just think it, it's a an un, it's an, an unspoken sort of truth that teachers are less confident teaching low-ability kids, I, I read a, um, an article by Noel Titheridge about two weeks ago on, um, on isolation systems in school, and I don't know much about him, um, but I'd guess he's not a teacher, or hasn't been a teacher, I'd guess. But regardless of that, it was an incredibly damning article about, about education and about discipline in school, which I think contributes to the detriment. It contributes really poorly to this this societal suspicion and criticism of schools. He 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 was essentially saying that it's that sanctioning students is almost a form of discrimination. And in that, as Link to what what was saying about lower ability classes, in that he said he sent out a survey to a thousand schools. Yeah, a thousand schools, and he said over five. It was just a brief statement, but he said over over five thousand students with special educational needs had been placed in isolation, and 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 then proceeded to to portray that as if it was some form of discrimination, as if it was you know immoral, and and I and, and I read that and thought. So if a student with dyslexia because the, the, the spectrum of of, of, spe- of being an SEN student is huge, so you, you can you can ha- you, you know you can be dyslexic for example does does that mean that because you're dyslexic, if you're bullying another student in the classroom that you should remain in the classroom does that does that mean that if you have dyspraxia that you can verbally abuse the member of staff and you shouldn't be you shouldn't be sanctioned I would I would firmly argue no you if we just because someone has a special educational need does not mean that they should they should absolve themselves of all responsibility over their behavior and and I and I just think reading that article I it just it, it infuriated me because I thought one this is not helpful two it's not a fair reflection of the incredible amount of work that teachers put into including all students in in lessons and making making knowledge accessible um, and I just yeah thought it was indicative of the way that lots of people view um, education and view sanctioning and I think it's sad. I, I just I, th- I think it's really sad because it again it puts a, the teacher on a back foot. It makes a, a teacher feel that they're some way they're in some way. Um, it makes a teacher feel that they are in some form behaving immorally when they sanction a student with special mm-hmm. educational needs.
0: Whereas actually the the kindest and the correct thing to do is to treat them the same as everyone else, while making sure that they are adapting yeah. to make sure that they can access what uh, access whatever it is they need to access within the classroom. Yeah, but behaviourally, yeah, uh, unless of course like, if there, a student there, has ADHD, there are some things obviously. Then you, yeah, of, of course, you have to work with the with the student's disability. Of sometimes course, and, of, yeah, but, but, it, 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 but it you're almost doing it a disservice if you if you're. Not take not not treating them the same as everyone else, and that's the thing.
1: yeah. What what frustrated me was he assumed that any time a student of SEN is is sanctioned or placed in isolation, which isolation varies, you know, over a thousand schools, they're going to be very different in the, the way that it looks. But it assumed that the teacher almost doesn't care about that need, or that has overlooked that need, mm. and and has been treated. As if they haven't got a need. I just think it's important that we don't allow students and we don't allow ourselves to use a special educational need as an excuse to be rude, disrespectful and apathetic. Of course, so we should expect the same level of, you know, behaviour and respect whilst making sure that we're doing our utmost as as teachers to make sure that the work is accessible, they they can, you know, access it, understand it, etc. And I just think that what the article did was it assumed that teachers don't do that, it assumed that teachers almost don't care and neglect students with special educational needs um, because 5,000
0: have been isolated or whatever, which actually I think if you do the math isn't a lot across a thousand schools so yeah. five per school over what time period a year yeah well you're the mathematician <laughs> yeah. so
1: but I and, and I just think that again it contributes to this this narrative that you know teachers don't care we're just we're just there for the holidays and we sit at our desks while you know as long as they're quiet you, you know, know that sort of that sort of image and, mm-hmm. I, and, and I think actually what articles like that do is they is they try to strip schools of their authority, of, of their right to expect goodness from their students. And that's why one of the, a really important thing for us at, at, at GW is is like secondary behaviours, like muttering under the breath, rolling students rolling eyes. We 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 challenge that. Don't isolate students for it, but we 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 challenge that because we think it's really important that even if you disagree with something, that you move on from that, or that you know in the workplace if your boss asks you to do something and you really don't want to do it, and you roll your eyes and swear under your breath, or you know
0: that's not an that, acceptable yeah, way to behave. The, from, the
1: secondary behaviours are really important yeah. in in a world that values soft skills. You know, I'd like to think that. There's a, there's a student actually who you know had a really difficult time at our school he finished in year eleven and um he f- he found he found it really challenging and his behavior at times was often really challenging. We had like a results or like a celebration evening just a couple of weeks ago where last year's year elevens came back and and he he got through year eleven he you know managed to get um some some results to the credit of him and the school and we really worked with that student to sort of pull him through. And he was one of those students that, although pushed the boundaries and often um, made made teachers' lives difficult, was really charming and, you know, had that spark and, and had those soft skills. And he's gone and got a job. He really wants to be a car salesman. And he's gone and, and he's working for um, a a local dealership. And he came in, you know, strutting his stuff, wearing a suit full of beans. And it's... If, I think as a school, if we didn't challenge those things, even though he his behaviour he didn't become a, a prefect or a head boy in, in in year eleven, because we valued those things as much as throwing you know that it's wrong to throw chairs at teachers and swear at other students and bully people, for example, because we thought those things and believed that those things were important to in a in a young person's development. I think I do I do believe that that's contributed to his success now, because. We we, we we sweat the small stuff, and for some, for for some for, for some students that can it can you can feel quite intense. I think some of the students you know in schools that have really high expectations, it you know it feels sometimes like there's a lot of pressure. But then on the on, the, on you know on the other hand, if a student doesn't feel any pressure, or any um, you know need to really dig deep, and get to the nitty gritty, and, and work hard then are we developing resilience and these skills that people, you know, that are so important? And so, yeah, I, I mean, I could go on and on about about different students and how they've really benefited from having, being in an environment where we've got really high expectations for behaviour.
0: Well, Max, this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Your passion is uh, is very clear and it's it's really interesting to hear what you've got to say. Just for the listeners, um, like any good teacher, Max has completed this whole interview holding a whiteboard pen. So uh, <laughs> I realised I was tapping yeah. it on the table. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so you know you can picture that. Um, if you've got any questions for Max or or me um, or about what we've discussed in the episode, then please do just get in touch. Uh, you can tweet me at rich m broad or get hold of Max by tweeting him at. Max B Scott Um, and join us next time to hear more teacher hacks shared by teachers for teachers.